The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Okay, hi everybody, and this week I am back with James Farmer from CIM. James, how are you? Hi, yeah, good, thank you, very good. Uh, there's something that um, really resonated with me this last week or so, is this return to our consciousness of HMV, and mm. um, you and I, direct contemporaries, recall, I dare say, spending an inordinate amount of time on mm. Saturday mornings, or in fact any weekday morning when we're uh, ostensibly trying to read for our degree, digging out uh, records, listening over and over again, finding th- rare examples and taking one or two home, HMV's back, isn't it, with mm. this model? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, re- recent, recently covered in, uh, in exchange articles that we've, uh, we've published the um, HMV Vault in um, Birmingham, which is taking a far more sort of experiential approach um, to the, the shopping experience, um, which I think you know we're seeing a lot in the way that brands are, um, you know, sort of fighting their way back into hearts and minds. Well, I mean, it seems at first it might seem counterintuitive. We've been told for the last twenty years or fifteen years or ten years or however long it is that the idea of buying physical music in physical form is mm. kind of bonkers, and no one would ever do it again. And that's mm. exactly what this is based around, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely. Yeah, I think you know. For quite a while now, we'll see the the resurgence of vinyl. Do you think a, a millennial audience, generation below us, uh, Gen Xers, mm. um, could not perceive of listening to vinyl records in a shop and then buying a couple? I think they do. They have grown up in a world which is purely digital, and it's been sort of forced upon them. And if there's one thing that gets Gen Z's backs up, <laughs> I think, is being told what to do oh, yeah. and being forced into a corner, a decision corner, or, or an emotional corner. And I think that's where, you know, there is that natural pushback. There was a young girl that said something about, you know, um, it's so nice to be able to actually buy something, phys- you know, buy a piece of music physically rather than just streaming it on your phone, you know. Yeah. There is this retaliation and there's, you know, there's obviously a level of awareness of, the past and the way music, in particular, in this instance, used to be. You know, even cassettes are coming back, aren't they? We, you know, TDKs are coming. You know, so, TDK, yeah. you know, albums are being released on back on cassette again, which is hilarious. But the idea of perception, I, I still think there is an, a there isn't something about a, a generational perception. I was at a party over the summer with my friends who have migrated to New Zealand, visited back in the middle of summer, and we held a party for them. And we all we all had an hour or an hour and a half to do it to do a set. Most of which was done digitally on yeah. digital decks or yeah. digital software. One of the guys brought um, uh, Technics 1210s, and uh, my son couldn't understand how he could mix them. How was he? He's 10. Mm. He said, how, how can he mix that without a, without, without a software to do it? And I mm. said, well, by listening to it. Mm. Um, and so there is a difference between people who have known nothing else mm. other than digital, mm. taking this retrograde strap, this visceral mm. retrograde strap of seeing somebody mm. um, do things by ear or do things by eye, is the way it used to be done. Yeah. Um, which is pre- presumably quite romantic and exciting, hence yeah. the HMV fight back. Yeah. You know, the, the actual act of streaming versus purchasing... Uh, I think there's a sort of a human truth around you feel as if you've got better value for money if you have something tangibly in your hands. Um, and I think the HMV is sort of looking to ride that wave 
in a limited capacity. You know, this is obviously a bit of a test of the, of the vault. Yeah. Um, but you know, tying it in with with things that um, really amplify the emo- emotional, emotive element of music in people's lives. Mm. You know, it's that that sort of having that live music and Liam Payne I think, was sort of was it there at the opening, wasn't he? And that sort of live live music experience, screening rooms, cafes, so you don't have to leave to go and get a coffee or a sandwich. You know, you can, it's, a, it's a destination. It's a destination to become immersed in it. Yeah. Um, one thing I just like about record shopping was the feeling of serendipity that you might see a special purchase or a bootleg and if mm. you didn't buy it that Saturday, yeah. it wasn't going to be there the next Saturday, which was yeah. something that was completely stripped away by yeah. the digital revolution because it didn't matter if you bought it that Saturday or that Sunday or Monday, it was going to be there the next day and forevermore. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what HMB seemed to me to be trying to do is to tap into that, get you into this place, Feel the experience of the music, buy something you like on the day, take it home and cherish it. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And it's about engaging people. It's about brand, brands engaging with um, consumers' prospects at, at an emotional level, and and adding value and driving relevance um, and and creating, you know, communities of music lovers. Yeah, uh, you know, learning and and the the, the natural peer to peer learning that happens through that, and the experiences and memories that are built around um, those sorts of um, interactions. Yeah, and if you can be at the core of that community, then then you're onto a winner. They had a strong brand, didn't they? Even when they uh, it was announced that they were going to say take this retreat mm. from the high street, they had a strong brand. There was lots of outpourings of grief, not enough outpouring of cash on the part of the <laughs> consumer, which is why they exactly. um, retreated in the first place. But they did have a, a, a strong brand even then. It seems to me what they're trying to do with HMV Volt is they're trying to leverage the essence of that brand, trying to boil down what it was yeah. that made them a love brand yeah. and bring that back to life. Yeah. Absolutely, I think that 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 sort of hits the, hits the nail on the head very much. So, and it's not a it's not a new model. It's it, it, we see it um, not through brands necessarily that are, are on the brink of disappearing, but you know, Virgin and EasyJet are two very good examples. Yeah. EasyJet in particular, where they take that sort of easy, not just prefix within the name of the brand, but the the, the core essence or brand um, proposition or positioning. What they stand for, um, sort of no frills, yeah, and, and then roll it out into other areas of people's lives. So easy gym, easy food store, being a couple of examples where you know you know what you're going to get. Yeah. And I think the more sort of strands that you can reach out um, into people's lives, the more chance you've got of driving saliency and, and advocacy. Um, even if the gym isn't the most snazzy gym, no. um, it, it appeals to the right audience yeah. um, that would happily fly on an easy you know easy jet flight so um i think hmv are absolutely doing that that you know it's what what they were known for which was um the 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 thumbing through cds yeah. through comedy vhs's yeah. through posters that you could yeah. put on your bedroom wall t-shirts in cellophane T- absolutely <laughs> yeah. yeah t-shirt exactly and, and and actually i went to my local audience cinema and They'd completely changed it, um, the the foyer from just the pick and mix and the popcorns to um, t-shirts right. with uh, with all the Marvel characters on and posters, and it's an obvious thing to do. It is, but you know, it was it was missing from from their foyers for you know a, a good 
good slug of time. Well, that's a great example, isn't it, of Odeon? Because they, what they're doing with their upgrades to their foyers and to their restaurants and cafes is they are trying to think, well, hang on a second, when people come into our cinemas, yeah. they are immersed in yeah. cinematography life, yeah. if you like. Yeah. And they're, they're willing f- to let go of reality. They want to leave reality at the door. They do. They want to suspend their disbelief. They yeah. want to be part of this, this, this story. They want to be in the minds and hearts of their superheroes or, or film stars. What can we sell them while they're here and they are in yeah. that mindset? And it strikes me that's a very powerful way of leveraging a brand, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's ultimately what HMV are doing. It's what... Um, um, you know, a, a lot of the leading brands do. They, they 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 look at how they can extend and expand, drive relevance and engagement into uh, in, into cons- consumers' worlds, and that's really where this whole shift towards experiential, is, you know, is going. Yeah. We're we're teetering on the edge of ODing on experiences. We could, yes. <laughs> we, we could um we could suggest, and I think in in our uh, January edition of Catalyst, we we look at. The explosion of festivals and have we have we reached peak festival? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's something to look out for for um, for our members. You could almost go. There are three or four festivals available to anyone now on every single every, weekend between every, May and October on right? every facet of life. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's interesting actually. Some some big brands, some brands that would appear in you know charts of brands year in year out are, are getting involved with. Festivals as well, aren't they? And trying to bring that, bring their a bit of their brand essence into the event scene. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and we also see it in um, the, the 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 sort of the birth of the live format. Um, there's publishers who are creating sort of live magazines. Um, there are the likes of um, Puffin who are doing um, live podcasts. Yeah. So you're sort of merging, blending the different content output um, verticals um, at, so that it is an experiential um, association and involvement which then sort of resonates. It's sort of along the um, Confucius, although whether it was actually him that said it or not is is uh, debated, but it's, for me it's that tell me and I forget, show me and I remember, involve me and I understand. Mm. Um, and I think that's ultimately where all of these brand strategies and positionings are, are, are looking to um, are looking to move towards, um, and that's the 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 recent BT um, reestablishments of their brand and and positioning. I think is at the heart of that. So the Beyond Limits campaign, which um, really looks at moving into communities. So again, obviously communities inherent with that is human and human truths and yeah. um, sort of peer-to-peer and all those sort of juicy things that that, that we as marketers like to um, understand and, and, and act on. Um, and, and, and for them, it's about showing um, what they bring to the world. It's not just landlines. It's not just yeah. um, telephony products, broadband. Yeah. Um, they're using it as a communications platform for the company, but also it's an internal rallying call. Well, they're not um, selling. This is about the essence of a brand, isn't it? They're not and never have been selling copper wire and fiber optics, have mm-hmm. they? BT. That's not what they sell. They no. sell connectivity exactly. and communication. So this yeah. is a really interesting example of um, a brand leveraging the essence of what it's selling, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, 
we've seen on TV the, the, the community work they're doing along this uh, in this program with the with the two sets of schools. Yeah. With the paint and the robot. How, yeah. How's that, how's that work? Yeah. So it's it's a it's a channel partnership that they're doing with ITV, and um, it's a it's it's a lovely um, brand brand ad um, which shows two classrooms um, in two different schools in in the UK. Um, one school has a robot um, which has a, a spray paint. Um, in its clasp, yeah. um, and is uh, is in front of all the kids in front of a, a blank canvas, but the kids in the other um, classroom are actually controlling it, and it's yeah. the communication between via a video um, app, video conferencing app of of, of some description. Um, it's the it's the instruction and the communication that's required to succeed and to ensure that the robot sprays on the um, on on the canvas. And if, if they get it wrong, presumably their uniform gets covered in magenta. Paint, exactly, which yeah. which leads to much hilarity yeah. <laughs> uh, amongst the kids. But you know, but the message behind that is that BT are giving five million kids the tech skills they need to succeed. So you know, they are they're going beyond perception, um, and you know, one could argue beyond the limits of people's current perceptions of them so I think it's quite an interesting line and um, that they've that they've chosen um, if they get it right if they if they get their they, they work out clearly what their essence of their brand is and leverage that essence mm. then it can be a very very successful strategy can't it this but having a strong brand in and of itself yeah. is not enough is it no no not, not always it doesn't necessarily um, if it doesn't resonate yeah uh, if it doesn't if it doesn't Sort of align with with a, a, a human truth or a, a, a need, then it can very easily lose relevance, um, regardless of how strong it, it it is. Absolutely, the third strongest brand in the UK is M and S, and it's not having a good time of things at the moment, which no. suggests that they've either not managed to work out what the essence of their brand is and leverage it, yeah. or the essence of their brand is is somehow not enough for for them to be able to leverage it yeah which is it do you think they haven't taken themselves on the journey so they haven't right. they haven't they haven't kept themselves aligned with the changing needs of of consumers certainly clothing yes. and and ex- the shopping experience i think mm. uh, and the actual fit out of the stores yeah um, i think that's where they've really sort of fallen behind so you know, in terms of unprompted awareness, they score really well. Yes. But I think that's just because of the strength, the you know, the iconoclastic degree with which they are held and revered, but through rose-tinted glasses. It's more of a comfort blanket. Exactly. Yeah, it is. And I think people remember them well, but um, and, and they remember sort of spending time there as a child. But um, they they're not spending time there now, um, parting with their with their money necessarily. I think they're. The, the level of engagement that they have is in danger of becoming just a meal deal right. <laughs> on, a, on, you know, on, a, on a working day lunch break. So even, even with a strong brand, you've got to find a, something that you can leverage that is visceral and yeah. exciting for people and speaks to what you're offering, those human truths that you're yeah, talking exactly. about. Exactly. Uh, and that's the way that you do what uh, marketers are being told at the moment they have to do, which is exceed... Mm ever-rising customer mm. expectations. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this work that Interbrand have been doing um, on iconic moves. It's controversial. Um, Mark Ritson has critiqued it pretty heavily mm-hmm. um, uh, in, his, in his work. Um, but that's not to say there's not anything in it, is there? There's something in this idea of iconic moves and going beyond this rising line of customer expectations. Yeah, I think there is. I mean... Um 
Interbrand claim in their articles that accelerating markets where customer expectations are perpetually moving ahead of business make a, make a strategic decision about what your brand is meant to represent completely pointless. Mm. Now, I think that's sort of a bit sensationalist. Sounds it, doesn't it? It does rather, yeah. But um, I, I think to, to, really, to really sort of make an impact in a world which is becoming fairly ubiquitous and disposable and uh, you know looking at the looking at the sort of seven p's you know price promotion and to a, to, a, to an increasing degree product are pretty hard fronts to compete on mm. um where, where where it's the race to the bottom for pricing everything's delivered the next day or it's becoming so yeah. that, but but ironically that's because of thanks to to amazon's iconic move which, which it Thomas, was an iconic which move. it was an iconic move absolutely so yeah. so i think that, that there is there is a certain you know, element of element of truth, and I very much agree with a lot of what they write in the article. But you know, they've jumped on this bandwagon of killing off a, a well-established marketing principle around um, you know calling the death of brand positioning due to the speed of movement. Um, and I think that's that's the thing that really got Ritson's tail up. Yeah, <laughs> because there there is this real movement at the moment around. You know the death of brand, the death of research, the death of segmentation, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Everyone's keen to create these big headlines to to stand out, and you could argue um, that this interbrand article the, is is their own iconic move um, to try and disrupt and, and to drive fame into new areas which they're not necessarily known for. You know the brand value is is, is this, this top one hundred. Um, most valuable brands is, is ultimately their most famous output and by trying to segue into a new category of brand strategy to generate more revenue potentially <laughs> probably um, you know they've come up with this new way of talking about brand positioning and, and, and it is it feels as if it is their own iconic move but for me the reality is that they've created this headline this new movement um, based on review of the world's 100 most valuable brands, and actually even fewer than that, really, I think when you sort of boil it down, it's based on the top five and what they've done to really shake up or create new categories to over-deliver on expectations, mm-hmm. whether that's Apple through the consumer tech you know, interfaces that they, that they created in iOS, or whether it's through Amazon's delivery or Uber. Now, this is all very well and good, but the reality for 99% of marketers and businesses, SMEs and downwards, etc., um, and, and, and ergo brands, is that you know they don't, they don't have the ability to do iconic moves. Well, this was my this was my thinking. Apart from the sort of the, the traditional neophilia that this sector has, yeah. everything has to be new and and, yeah. and, 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 and anything old is, is dead. Which is kind of Ritson's point in his in his essay. Um, the the simple truth is that iconic moves are only available to some products or some companies in some categories. Yeah. If you're in the world of apparel, clothing, fashion, there is no iconic move that exceeds customer expectations insofar as it makes a step change. Mm. Clothes are something you wear on your back. You can make them. Uh, more fashionable, you can make them more environment friendly, uh, you can make them be delivered more quickly, mm. um, you can make them fit better, but you can't do something that is uh, that is outside the uh, concept of putting a shirt or a dress on your back. So there is still a lot to be said for traditional brand positioning, isn't there? Yeah, totally. I think it is, you know, this 
this headline this headline statement is is relevant to the few not the many when you try and change a principle which is used by all mm. and try and make it relevant to the few then then that's when you're 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 bound to to, to elicit criticism um you know what's 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 behind these iconic moves are um involving brands businesses along trajectories that align perfectly with I'm 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 paraphrasing here mm. align perfectly with the human truths they serve the experiences they provide and the economics that sustain them you can only do something big impactful iconic in 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 certain verticals certain sectors yeah. your clothing example is a fine one you know yes there are new human truths out there that we probably don't know about yet when it comes to clothing yeah. but ultimately they are quite functional um, facets of our lives yeah. that serve quite a, um, a a sort of dull but no less important role. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a bit sensationist. I think the um, the article it, by that. People could could attack and comment on this podcast and say, well, you know, Ben Walker's not thought about wearable tech and yeah. you know fusing yeah. uh, fashion with with the tech sector and so on and so forth. But again, I think it's it's a narrow margin, isn't it, that and actually a yeah. lot of the, the areas and, and, and the areas in which clothing companies that are doing well are just doing it quicker. They're doing it, uh, you know, now we see, we talked about it a few weeks ago, uh, you know, in a more environmentally friendly way, and they're yeah. winning, winning hearts and minds that way. Yeah. But they're not actually changing the basic function. No. Of and their they, 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 Interbrand cite Gucci as being one of the iconic movers, and I, I don't quite agree with that. I think what they have done is looked at the human truths, to, to, to use their language, to use Interbrand's language, around... Um, their uh, sort of desired or, or upcoming audiences around mm. Gen Z and looked at how they need to evolve their brand mm. and their positioning to be relevant and to add value to them. And but, I think, you know, that, that isn't an iconic move, I don't think. Um, and arguably, iconic moves should be, could be, a tactic that sits under the brand positioning strategy mm. for relevant uh, relevant being size and, 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 and category um, brands. It shouldn't replace... Brand positioning is that the Gucci move isn't really. They're not changing their main their main product proposition, are they? They're still trying to sell handbags to wealthy women in um, big capital cities. Yeah. The, the the move is to try to appeal to millennials in the hope that one day they will be wealthy women in big capital cities. It's not actually changing their basic proposition, which is that we sell very beautiful handbags yeah. uh, at very high prices. Yeah. And other and other um, clothing stroke accessory yeah. um, art, articles, but ultimately, yes, exactly. They're just um, tweaking their tone of voice, the yeah. way that they um, yeah. uh, bring their personality to a, a more youthful audience, and they've done that very well in social. Mm. But it's the, uh, it's not an iconic move. Iconic moves are, are things that you are creating something that people could not previously have perceived of. Exactly. So um, Uber was a genuinely iconic move yeah. simply because it wasn't in the human perception yeah. that a cab service yeah. could work in this way. Yeah. A cab service was inherently a hassle. You never knew when he was going to be here. You had to have the cash on you to pay him or you had to do the horrible thing where you stopped at two in the morning at the bank <laughs> machine. ATM, yeah. uh, and suddenly someone realised that actually this is a completely stupid way of running this service, and uh, we'll do it. In, we'll do it where we know exactly where this guy is, yeah. uh, and actually, it just charges your bank account. No one could perceive it before that happened. Um, a lot of these iconic moves that are uh, being talked about are, are not 
in fact, iconic, or they're even, not even particularly moves, are they? They're no. just a, they're just a, a twist on something that was went, had gone before. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I, I think they they got um, they being Interbrand got a little bit caught up in this um, this stat perceived static element of of brand positioning and some of the language which gets used around brand positioning, but the word positioning itself. Um, values that you stand for brand architecture and they use that as a sort of a launch pad mm. to 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 come up with an idea which is more attuned to the moving needs the pace of change through technology and the way that consumers interact with brands and um the the the, the, the pace and they use that juxtaposition of staticness and movement to sort of almost substantiate or rationalize this this um this new new approach. Do you think it gets marketers' backs up that they are constantly being told they have to have gigantic sea changes uh, um, in, 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 in positioning and performance? They have to have a sort of daily epiphany moments about new and exciting ways to appeal to their market, when actually, presumably, like any other industry, most of the benefit you bring, most of the value you bring, is going to be incremental. I think it is that pressure to do something which creates a real step change in commercial yes. performance of a, of, of a business and, and that is that short-term long-term balancing act which uh, you know marketers are, are constantly have to have to sort of uh, deal with or, or the line that they have to tread um, and I think this sort of iconic move is is very much blinkeredly in the step change um, camp, yes. rather than the, um, the the more sort of well established and understood and and and, and sort of perceived um, area of um, you know standing for something, um, yeah. and and creating shorter term activations, purchases, revenue off the back of that, um, and building that longer term sort of advocacy. You think there's still a lot to be said for going back to basics, simple marketing principles. Seven P's and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 um, I, I, whilst I have a lot of sympathy and agreement with with a lot of what um, Interbrand say in their article, I think I do end up coming down on the, on, on the side, so to speak, of of what Ritson's saying. You know, it feels as if we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater again. Yeah. I think you know the fundamentals um, aren't broken. I, what I do think is that very much what we are seeing is where battles and and hearts and minds are being fought over is around um going back to the seven p's it's very much around process people and place yeah i think um the price promotion and to to an increasing degree product is becoming more and more ubiquitous so yeah. it's the experiential physical um Value elements of 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 pro process people and place that are that are, is where the battleground is. Bring your consumer back towards you. Bring your consumer closer to you. Um, have an experience with her. Absolutely. And um, make her, to your Confucius point, understand your brand better. Exactly. James, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks. Join us next time when we ask what impact marketing has on the festive season. CIM Podcast.